C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, describes a young man who has a lizard on his shoulder. And the, the lizard just sat there whispering all kinds of things to him, whispering lies of who he thought he was, maybe how great he was. And sometimes the lizard whispered lies to lead him astray. Well, one day an angel came to this young man and said, I can get rid of that lizard. And the young man really was enticed by getting rid of the lizard. But he began to see as the angel moved closer, the angel started to glow and got fiery hot. And when the angel reached out to grab the lizard, the young man stepped back and said, wait a minute. Not sure. Can we talk about this? Could we maybe push this to another time? I see what you want to do. You not only want to get rid of the lizard, you want to kill the lizard. Well, that set in motion some things about this lizard. This lizard is one that represents our personal indwelling sin. And it sits on our shoulders. And some of us have it on the shoulder and we need someone to tell us, hey, did you know there's a lizard on your shoulder? What happens with this lizard is we're whispered lies. Sometimes there's lies to puff us up, to build us up. Sometimes there's lies to tear us down. Sometimes there are lies to lead us astray. We're going to see this morning, as we talk about church, the impact of having lizards on our shoulders. If you have your Bible this morning, would you open with me? If you have a device, it's so important that you see the Word of God. We read it together. We study it together. The Word, let me just say, as we dive in this morning, it's not like any other holy book. It's not like the Quran. It's not like some of the Hindu holy books. This book, this Bible, is the Word of God, and God wants to speak to us this morning. He has something He wants to say. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand for the reading of the Word? Let me ask you just one more question, and only you can answer it. Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to hear God speak into your life? Are you, are you willing and open? inviting God to do that. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never, never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, as we study your word this morning, give us those ears to hear. Open our eyes. Let us see, God. And for everyone here, God, they're here because they want a word from you. They need something for today, maybe something this week, maybe something going on in their lives. And so, God, we're asking for you to speak and touch each person here. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. Well, remember last week we answered the question or looked at the question, what church? We're we're, we're looking at this big question as we study these churches in Asia Minor, and we asked last week the question, what church? And we answered it the way you would probably expect to see it answered, and that is a church where Jesus is present. A church where Jesus is among the people, and the people know that Jesus is among the people. That's the kind of church we want, and we want a church where Jesus sets the course. Not where the people set the course, but where Jesus says, hey, here's what I'm about. Here's where we need to go. Here's where we are going. And as we look at the person of Jesus Christ and keep him front and central, last week I said this, there's no place in a church for two celebrities, right? Either Jesus is a celebrity or someone else is a celebrity, but you can't have two. It's like Jesus said, you can't have two rulers, you can't have two masters, one will destroy or turn against the other, right? So one will be able to lead. And so Jesus is saying, he wants to be the head of the church. Now, as we look at this, we are in this area of the book of Revelation that has seven churches. Chapter 2, chapter 3 has seven churches. And when we think about the seven churches, we can start asking a question like, huh, is seven a significant number? Is, is that just an accidental number, or is it a significant number? And what I want to tell you is that it is significant, it is symbolic, it is figurative, and throughout the Old Testament, we see that the number seven often represents, not always literally, but figuratively, represents completeness, or wholeness, or fullness. And so when we look at these seven churches, we need to see that these churches represent all the churches of Asia Minor, not just the seven churches. And some of you are saying, wait a minute, where's Asia Minor? Let me just remind you, Asia Minor is in modern-day Turkey. So we're talking about this region of the world where the church, when it first started flourishing, it was flourishing in this part. So the, the Seven churches then, in their fullness, represent all the churches in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey at that time. But by extension, it involves every church throughout the last 2,000 years. So this book, as all the books, are written for the churches today. If I read the book of Ephesians, it was written to the church at Ephesus, and it's not only written for them and their benefit, it's written for us and for our benefit. Well, this is written for them, the Sardinians, but also for our benefit as well. So the seven, I think, is figurative as we look at it. Now, there's another part that is really pretty amazing, is if you took the seven churches and you put them on a map, you'd begin to see that the first church that we looked at last week, chapter 2, verse 1, it's the church at Ephesus. Now, that was significant because Ephesus was a port city, and it was a foundational 
stronghold for the church coming through the port city. Then what happens is each of the cities that you read, or the churches in these different cities, is you move north, then you move east, and they create like a circle. That is important because as this, these letters written in the book of Revelation, as they went to each church, they then spread to the other churches in the area. So while the major cities, the seven of them are mentioned, they then spread and are significant. So there's seven historical cities. Let me just say some of the things that we're reading today in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, are coming out of Zechariah chapter 4. And so I always try to tell you that these symbols, these pictures, are anchored somewhere in the Old Testament, almost all of them, and this one is anchored, of course, in Zechariah chapter 4. Now the first thing I'd like to just lay out as we look at this passage is that the church brings a message of life. The church brings a message of life. And we see this in verse 1. In verse 1, we see what John is writing. Actually, the angel is writing down. Remember, last week I said that it's being recorded in heaven. It's also being recorded on earth, meaning it is substantial what is being said here. And it says, the words of him. I want to drill down again because remember when we read our Bibles we get different pictures of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is presented as this conquering king. Sometimes he's presented as a humbling a humble servant that dies on the cross. Sometimes he's presented as this judge that will determine everybody's destiny and sometimes we see Jesus as the common folk. So you always want to look and say, well, how is Jesus being described in this context? Well, we see Jesus, the of him, is talking about Jesus, and he says he has the seven spirits of God, the seven spirits of God. Now, I've already said the number seven is figurative for fullness or completeness, and so what it's saying is that Jesus has the fullness, the completeness of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. Well, of course, we see this in Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus began his ministry, we see that he started full of the Holy Spirit. So we see these patterns, and if we read the whole book of Revelation, went back into chapter 1, verse 4, we'd begin to see the same kind of thing, because the phrase seven spirits is used in the first chapter, verse 4, and that we get this idea of fullness again, or this completeness. So what John is writing and wants us to know is that Jesus, as he's speaking to the Sardinians, that he is full, complete God. He is the spirit, fullness of the spirit and his power. But that's not the only thing it says about him. It says that he has, remember the word has here, has seven stars. This is a picture of Jesus, his sovereignty, his control. The stars represent, remember, the angels over the church. The lampstands were the church. The angels were the stars. And they are the guardian angels over these churches and guardian angels over even a church like Fox Valley Church. But Jesus has them in his hand, which is a picture of his sovereignty, his control, and that he is going to lead the church. Regardless of what people do, Separate from what people decide about the church, Jesus is saying, I'm 
the head of the church. I'm the Lord. I'm the master. And these things are going to happen. So as we look at questions about the church, we need to see that this church is with Jesus, that he is God, the seven spirits, the seven stars. He has control. And look at what this one that has all control, the one that has all power, the one that is fully God. Look what he says. You have the reputation of being alive. And then we get the but. But you are in reality dead. You are spiritually dead. So you can imagine. They come on Sunday morning. They're singing the songs. They're going through the motions. And God, Jesus, is looking at them and saying, your name, literally it says, you have a name of being alive. But the reality is, you're dead. You are spiritually, spiritually dead. Reality is, the lizards sitting on their shoulders, and they're not doing anything about it. The lizards whispering, wow, you're all that. Look at all the great things you're doing. Look at how you're conquering. Look at how you're serving. Look at how you're doing all these things. But Jesus Christ is never exalted. He is never lifted up. And they are not doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're doing it in their own power, in their own ability. And that's what he means by spiritually dead. Is that it's all in the flesh. It's all in their own strength. And as I reflect on this, I start thinking about what happens in a church and I start asking myself what kind of church do you want right now that's a little bit of what we asked last week what kind of church I want a church where Jesus is king I want a church where Jesus is present I want a church where the power and presence of Jesus is real and it's alive not something that's fabricated or I think of Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, right? The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? These kinds of things. That's the kind of church I want. I want a church where there's love, where there's kindness, where there's goodness. When I walk in, I can leave the world behind and I can walk in and experience peace, right? That's the church you want. That's the church we all want. We want a place where we can come in And leave the world behind. We want a church where people will love us. Where they'll care enough about us to say, hey, you've got a lizard on your shoulder. So I get it out of the metaphor and you're not confused. Hey, there's something going on in your life and it's going to destroy you. It's going to kill you. If you keep listening to that lizard, if you keep listening to those lies, you're going to end up in a bad place. Got to be discerning. I remember a few years ago, I had a man, young man, come to me, and he was married, but he had found a younger woman. And he knew this was God's plan because his marriage was so bad. It was so hard. It was so difficult. And, and, and he looked me in the eye and he said this to me, and I quote, I have never felt so alive. 
Those exact words that we're reading in Revelation. I have never felt so alive. I looked at him and I said, of course you've never felt so alive. With your instinct and urges for this young woman, I'll bet you feel alive. But it wasn't a spiritual aliveness. And what Jesus would have said to him is, you have a name for being alive, but in reality, you are dead. So we all want this alive church. We want to be able to come in on a Sunday morning and know that people care. We want to come in on Sunday morning and not be judged or condemned, but someone that loves us. We want to come in on Sunday morning and feel peace and strength and get a direction for our lives, allowing God to speak. But the question then is, this week, is not so much what church, but why church? Why church? And I think it's because we all long for a place. We long for heaven, don't we? We long for the world to be right. There's something in our hearts where we just want things to be filled with love, perfect love. We want things to be filled with peace and joy. Those are the things that God put in our hearts. Now, so why church? Why does church matter? Because the church should give us a taste of heaven. And when the church collapses or fails to bring a taste of heaven, it's then when we walk out of the church. It's then when we don't want to be around. So the church should be a place where we begin to experience the kind of love that God has for his people. The church is what God planned for us to have a place where we could experience joy and peace. I wrote down a few things as, as I was reflecting on this. Is that the world is filled with loneliness. The world is disconnected, right? We try to find connection through things like Facebook. Nothing necessarily wrong with Facebook, but it'll never connect you the way your soul wants to be connected. If you come in and you're happy and excited, you want someone to touch you and someone that will listen to you to hear your excitement. Or if you come in and you're discouraged and you're beaten down, you want someone to hold your shoulder and say, I can see life's been hard this week. You, you, you want that. We want a place where we can deal with the anger. We want the anger from the world. The world is filled with this anger that's raging against all kinds of stuff. The world is filled with suspicion over everything and everyone. The world is filled with competition. And what we want is a place when I walk in the door where it's family, where I'm not competing against everyone else, where someone who is successful in their career and accomplishing good things, they're on the same level is everyone else maybe on the level of someone who's not done so well they feel the competition is gone it's left 
at the door because it's out in the world. We want a place of kindness, love, and friendship. We want a place of connection, a place that gives a clear sense of purpose and meaning. This world is scratching and clawing to try to get meaning and purpose. Never get it here in the world, but in the church. We want a place of safety and not trauma. We went, Kathy and I went to a conference in May It was all about people dealing with trauma from the church. Instead of it being a place of safety and a place of rescue, it was a place that traumatized. See, we want church to be a place where we can get a taste of heaven. Yesterday, I was with a man who spent his career as a band director. And as a middle school and high school band director, he he talked about how you give these instruments to the kids, right? And they're learning. And the, the, the sounds are bad. They're screeching the violins and the trumpets and all this stuff. It's terrible, right? But now you give them a piece of music that's hard and complex. So they get into high school and they're in the this, uh, symphony orchestra and they're going to play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, a very complex, beautiful, amazing piece. And they destroy it, right? They do the best they can. And as he was telling these stories, I got thinking about the church. And I thought, boy, what a picture of the church, isn't it? We're just a ragtag band. We come in, we want to taste of the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. But we get some screeching noise and it gets kind of messy. So then you start asking yourself, why church? Why mess with it? And the answer I want to give, and maybe you have a different one and maybe even a better one, But the answer that I begin to think about is if here we begin to explore the beauty and majesty and greatness of God and his kingdom and his work, just like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Even if it doesn't come off perfectly, it might be the only place where you get a taste of it. So we have people that come walking in wanting something they hear about the church. And this might be the only time, the only place where they get a taste of heaven. So if we're going to be the church, we've got to be the people that God's called us to be. And so the Sardinians that we're reading about here, right, they were having a reputation of being alive, but in reality, they were not alive but really really dead here's the second the church holds the keys to biblical truth the church holds the keys to biblical truth look what is written here remember remember what you have received and heard and then he says keep it keep it well what did they hear what did they receive They heard the word of God. They heard the message of God. Over and over, Paul uses this. Hold on, retain, keep, remember, recall, sound doctrine, sound words. And that word sound with Paul, it's the word healthy. 
And so we need to remember this. And the Sardinians were forgetting it. They weren't in the Word. They were forgetting the Word. But the church, a community of people, not only locally but globally, is what holds the words together so that someone doesn't twist them and pervert them and change them. It's the church that holds the keys to all of this. And that's where John is writing this down. He's saying, remember this. Remember this. He says, if you will not wake up, if you're going to keep yourself out of the Word, if you're going to keep forgetting and not retaining, I will come like a thief. Well, isn't that what Jesus did speak on? When he was here on earth, in Matthew 24, verses 42 and 45, or 44, he says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. This is Jesus preaching in Matthew chapter 24. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at the hour you do not expect. So there's an urgency, there's an expectation, and that's what is happening here in the passage as well, is that Jesus is using his own words from Matthew 24 to bring it here into Revelation chapter uh, chapter 3. Let me say one of the places that we work in Fox Valley Church to help people deal with the lizard is in our life groups. Life groups at Fox Valley Church are a small group. They're a place where we can break down into small groups of people and talk about life. Now here's where we're trying to go, and here's a key verse that we talk about. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, it says, Jesus Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, every man, every woman, every student, fully mature. So we're striving to do that. But what I've learned is that a lot of times we don't have people dealing with it. So here's our mission as we think about life groups. Our mission is to use word-centered, use the Bible, shepherding people by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to get below the waterline, as I talked about last week, and deal with the lizard on our shoulder. We need to not merely get rid of the lizard, we need to kill it, right? So how do you do this? I think one of the things we're trying to do is get into what we call transformation groups. Now, transformation groups ask three questions. Here's the first question, and the question is, who am I reaching? Who am I reaching? When was the last time you had someone look you in the eye and say, whose soul do you care about? Look at the last question on the list there. Do I take seriously the spiritual state of others' souls? Do we recognize that eternity is on the line? If we don't have someone asking us, I promise you, most of us just drift and we don't talk to other people 
about Jesus Christ. And the lizard continues to sit. And the lizard says this, oh, don't worry about it. There's always tomorrow. Hey, don't worry about their soul. Let someone else worry about it. Or, hey, you're not worthy. You don't have enough knowledge, etc. And so nobody's asking the question. Look at some of the other ones. Who is God calling me to reach? It's not for me to say. It's for you between God and the Holy Spirit working to say, hey, here's someone in your family you need to talk to. And the Spirit will bring this out to you. That's what a spiritually alive church does. What are the spiritual next steps? The Spirit is helping me discern for them. What is it God's asking me to do? If we don't have people asking us, it doesn't happen a lot of time. God uses three things. He uses the Word of God, the Spirit, and people. A church that is alive is concerned about what's going on. Here's a second question. What am I learning? Now, it's not just about knowledge here. Let's look at some of the questions. How do I see the Holy Spirit shaping and directing my life. So the lizard's sitting there. And the lizard is whispering, your life's crumbling. You should be scared. Your job is never going to be that good. You're going to fall apart. Your marriage, man, if I were you, I'd be scared. And the lizard starts wagging his tail. His eyes start lighting, lighting up. And he whispers these lies. And what we need is someone to start asking our questions. How do I see the Holy Spirit showing me that I have dignity and worth apart from my job, apart from my marriage, apart from my family, that God loves me, that I'm made in his image, right? These are hard questions sometimes. Let's go a little further. How is my Bible reading going? When was, someone, when was the last time someone asked you, how's your Bible reading going? And you waited for an answer. In our transformation groups, we're wanting to do that. We're wanting to start asking. Now, you've got to give people permission, but you also are coming and saying, I'm ready. I, I need to deal with the stuff in my life. Here's another question. What scripture stands out to me or do I find myself thinking about? What lies am I believing? Here's the third question we go after. How am I doing? How am I doing? What am I desiring most in my life? What is it you're after? Not by what you say with your words, but if I look at your time spent, you're going to tell me what you're after. If I look at what you did this week, all your activities, I can tell you what really matters. Right? This is how we reveal our lives. And so when we have someone asking us what really matters, you can drill down into these things. Are my desires aligned first for Jesus? What are my hurts? What's causing my sadness? Why am I so angry? Or what about this? Is there someone I need to forgive? Now, if we let the unforgiveness sit, it begins to kill us. You won't notice it right away, but slowly over time, that bitterness that hatred, that anger towards another person will begin to undo your soul. The way you kill the lizard is by confessing it as sin. And we're finding in our transformation groups, this is a part of life groups that meets just for this purpose. They're not meeting to get into the Word that week. They're not meeting to study. The Word's a part of it, but they're meeting 
so that they can come and just ask some of these questions. And we can be real with each other and honest. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord search the entire earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. So that's what the Spirit is doing. He's searching the earth. Who is really committed? Who wants to deal with the lizard on their shoulder? Well, let me hit this third point in the passage, and that's this. The church holds, the church will prevail. I'm sorry, the church will prevail. Verse 4, let's dig a little deeper. It says this, You, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. That is so encouraging to me. So while the world was seeping into the church, there were some Sardinians that would not allow the world to take hold of them. And Jesus is saying, the church will prevail. There may be a lot of people that take on the characteristics of the world, and it may seep into the church. But here, Jesus is reminding us, there's some people, let me tell you, that are living for Jesus Christ. And let me encourage you, don't ever be deceived by what happens or what you read in the news or see in the news about churches. Yes, there are churches that are collapsing. Yes, there are churches that are not doing it. But that is not the majority of what is happening around the world. Let me tell you what's happening around the majority of the world. God's people are living as God's people should. And Jesus is just reminding us in this church in Sardis that there's some people there that are being faithful. People who have not soiled their garments. Now that's a, a figure of speech. It's a figure that's talking about idolatry. We could track down some different passages, but what he's talking about here is idolatry. What's the number one idolatry in the United States? Probably we would say sex, maybe money, power, we're craving after positions, right? These are idols that grab hold of our hearts. And what Jesus is saying here is there's some people that have not been soiled by these various idols. They will walk with me, these few that have not, they will walk with me in white, just a picture of purity, a picture of transforming um, work of the Holy Spirit, for they are worthy. And so it begs the question for you and me. What kind of Christian do you want to be? How do you want to walk? Do you want Jesus to come and speak into your life and say, oh, you, you, you may be remembered or you may have the name alive, but in reality, you're dead. These are the things that Jesus is working in and through the church. Let's just hit one more verse here. Verse 5. Look what Jesus says. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, the one who kills the little lizard will be clothed in white garments and will ne and Jesus says I'll never blot his name out of the book of life what a powerful truth for us to live on as i think about this think of story that happened 1945 some of us are familiar with the indianapolis it was uh, torpedoed there were 1200 soldiers on that ship 300 of them died within like the first 12 minutes as the ship was sinking. 
Another several hundred died over the next several days being eaten by sharks. It was terrible tragedy. But a medical officer that survived this tragedy, 316 sailors survived. One of them was a medical officer. And one of the things he wrote down, recorded, was that he was telling the men, don't drink the seawater. The seawater looked beautiful. It was crystal blue, clear. And these men, after a day in the water, what happens? You begin to get parched. You're in the sun. You're not eating. There's nothing. And, and you're fighting sharks, and you're trying to survive. And your thirst level just keeps climbing. And the medical officer is saying over and over, don't drink the seawater. It'll kill you. Don't drink it. Don't drink it. Don't drink it. Let me tell you this morning. Don't drink the seawater of the world. It'll kill you. It will kill you. Just like it killed hundreds of men that were thrown in from the Indianapolis, the seawater of the world will kill you. What we need is the life-giving work of the Spirit, and that's what the Spirit is doing in and through the church. It is God's chosen vehicle. It's what Jesus said he was going to establish and what he is doing right now in our very midst as he is building up his church, not only here but around the world, and it is so exciting. And let me tell you, it's going to only get better as time goes on with what Jesus is doing. It's a great story to be a part of. Don't drink the water. Father, those words can be easy said, but hard to live out. We're so prone to want to drink the seawater, the world's water. It looks so good. It looks so enticing. But it'll kill us. Real life, exciting life, joy and peace. That can only be found in Jesus Christ. God, that's what we want. We want that taste of heaven right here. So God, we ask for your favor, your blessing on us. In Jesus' name.